Discussing world-changing ideas through real conversations. Exploring the potential of technology to solve the most critical challenges facing business, people and the planet. Coming up... Do we need to delegate uh, artificial intelligence to take decisions about who to fire, who to hire, who should be promoted, who should be my ally in a, maybe in a synergy in my own company? If a leader believes that that decision is not pertinent to him or to her, but is pertinent to artificial intelligence, frankly, the person should uh, stand up and, and leave the chance to somebody else. Leadership is about responsibility and accountability. It's not about power and money. This is the Real Conversations podcast by Nokia. Here is Michael Hainsworth. There is little doubt that artificial intelligence will change the way we work. Paolo Gallo is the author of The Seven Games of Leadership, Navigating the Inner Journey of Leaders. And he emphasizes the increasing importance of human qualities in succeeding in this world, arguing that empathy, collaboration, and caring are what make us truly human and can't be replicated by AI. So how does he describe how AI is changing the world of work in which we live today and will live in the world of tomorrow? Massively, in one word, but if I had to expand in a few seconds, I would say that the qualities that make us human are going to be more and more relevant going forward. What I mean by this is uh, empathy, collaboration, understanding, caring, and the capacity to engage with people in a meaningful way. This is something that I believe is going to be more and more relevant going forward. This sort of speaks to the idea that artificial intelligence is going to take things away from us or take them off our plate as workers. But at the same time, there will always be something that an artificial intelligence machine learning algorithm cannot do. And it is be empathetic, be collaborative, and care. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, i give you maybe one, one you know, story, which is a uh, um, couple of decades ago, um, anthropologist called Margaret Walt has been asked the question, when does civilization start? And people said, okay, when maybe, you know, they invented trade or currency or when people start to exchange goods and services. And she said, you know, about 50,000 years ago, they found out skeletons where they, we found trace of, uh, of bones being cured. And so up at a certain moment in civilization, when somebody got injured, he was left, he or she was left uh, alone or dying. And there's a moment in civilization where we started to care. We started to, to, to take care of the people that were injured. This is a moment when civilization starts. Civilization starts when we start to care. And equally, we can say that civilization stopped to be there when we start to care. So care is not just a condescending um, approach to humankind. It's really understanding all the people you point and understanding that perhaps all the people that think uh, differently from us deserve to be listened. Uh, without that capacity, nothing will be solved. Uh, and I think we have seen ample example of the terrible uh, consequences when we don't listen to people that don't think the way we do. I find it tremendously ironic that as we talk about the next major leap in technology and the next major leap in the evolution of the workplace, that it's not about technical transformation as much as it is about the transformation of ourselves, because empathy collaboration and caring are not things we're taught in business school to focus on. It's about being competitive. It's about getting the edge over someone else in the workplace. And for generations, we have been taught to always look out for number one. Michael, I, I, if I could, uh, I would give you a standing ovation. 
because that's exactly what, what I would uh, say and what I did write in, in, in my own book and uh, give you maybe a 30-second stories and, and uh, an emphasis on the word transformation you just used. Uh, I remember perfectly well my first day's work. Uh, there was uh, February 1st, 1989, uh, a Citigroup, okay? I was 23 years old, I was in New York uh, and uh, just graduated from Bocconi and I felt uh, you know, to be the king of the world. And somebody entered, and it was a bunch of people um, uh, called executive trainees, uh, um, recruited from all over the globe. We were about 120 of us at that time, and I remember I was the only one uh, from, from Italy. And uh, our starting salary, still remember, was $24,000, which was not a lot of money even then, okay? And the guy said, uh, um, uh, the person that I, I met first, uh, he said, okay, guys, uh, think about your salary. And we all thought about 24,000 because we all started with the same salary. Multiply by four. And if this is not your salary, uh, within two years, you're just a loser. And so for the very first uh, second, the idea was uh, equated that success uh, equal to make money. Okay. And I was 23 years old. And so I got an injection of competition first day of school. Okay. If you want. Now, fast forward, uh, 35 years later, you know, I'm now a 60 years old guy. Um, and, uh, and I really believe that that input was, was completely wrong. I'm not saying that money are not important, but I think uh, that we need to actually understand that competition and elbowing others is actually the recipe for disaster, stress, burnout, and fundamentally for society that don't work. So what we need to do, and you use exactly the word that I use many times in my in my book is to understand the difference between change and transformation. Change is something that occurs outside you, okay? And change management is not easy. For example, when you change house, you change job, you change country, you need to go through a process of, of adaptation. Transformation, you need to change. Um, and in order to understand the complexity of what's happening around you, the first thing that you need to transform is yourself. So the book that I wrote, The Seven Caves of Leadership, is focused on understanding the different phases of the transformation that we have to go through in order to develop yourself as an individual and only and exclusively if you do this you're a credible leader if not you're just a person in power so when leaders are navigating this transforming world and they themselves are dealing with change and they have to transform themselves how do you develop yourself as an individual how do you go through those personal growth phases to step away from that previous generation attitude of competition and pivot towards collaboration. Uh, there is a, um, a, a phase, uh, I call them games because there are some rules uh, that kind of govern every single uh, step in, in, in your journey. Um, it's called the crisis game. And the crisis game occurs to everybody. I jokingly say, listen, the crisis game, crisis like Easter, you don't know the exact date, but it's coming, okay? And, um, and what I mean by this is sometimes around the early to mid-40s, uh, you scratch your head, uh, you already played half of your professional life uh, in a certain modality with competition, greed, determination, hard work, uh, and you still have probably 20, if not more, years in front of you. And, and you go through a crisis, and crisis is a Greek word that implies the necessity of a decision. How you deal with this crisis, to me, define the difference between uh, uh, navigating or just floating or thriving and continue growing as an individual. And, um, and, and to me, the, 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 the element that allows you to grow as an individual is understanding that, uh, um, you know, a crisis is a wonderful moment of reinvention, 
and uh, the losses that you have incurred in your life, and when I say losses, I mean uh, not financial losses, but maybe difficult moment, are uh, an integral part of you growing as an individual, not something that you have to avoid, deny, or, 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 or maybe just go back to regression by pretending to be a 30 years old person when you may be 50. So uh, I, I think is um, I had the good fortune to work with uh, hundreds of leaders, and the one that I really believe they are true leaders are the ones that have mastered this capacity to manage the crisis in a meaningful way. Well, then, in the age of artificial intelligence, what are the responsibilities of leaders for the future? I think uh, the responsibility of leaders is to understand that they have a responsibility. Uh, what I mean by this is, uh, you know, there is a lot of debate about you know, delegating tasks uh, or many things will be done by artificial intelligence. That's fair enough, okay? And maybe there are certain tasks uh, that you do. It's absolutely fine to, to delegate uh, machines uh, to do it. But the uh, ethical dimension of decision-making has to remain with the leader, uh, has to remain uh, um, squarely within the mind and the DNA of a, of a leader, of a leadership team in organizations. And, and so to me, understand that leadership is equal responsibility, is not equal power or compensation, is actually not so obvious in the mind of many leaders uh, that I met in my life. In fact, actually, I don't consider these people as leaders. I just consider people that end up to be in a power position, but they're not leaders at all. You've told me that when it comes to being a leader of the future, you have to be optimistic, but we need to define the term optimism differently from what we might normally assume it means. The, the overall idea in the, the conventional truth is uh, optimism is uh, things will go the way you hope, you know? And, uh, you know, even in my own country, Italy, during COVID, everybody said, Andrà tutto bene, everything will be fine. Oh, that would be wonderful to think that that would be the outcome, but uh, regrettably, we learned that this is not the case. So optimism is not things will go the way you hope they would go. Uh, the optimism of a leader is to say, we will find a meaningful solution, whatever happens to the organization. And a meaningful solution is not necessarily what we thought of at the beginning, but it's something that you built along the way with the people that you collaborate with. So optimism is not like, tutto andrà bene, anything would be great, but to say, we will find a solution together if we have the decency, the integrity, and the time and the depth to discuss it and, and to work together uh, for for building and shaping something different that right now perhaps we don't even imagine. This brings us back to something we had talked about a little bit earlier. You say that finding meaningful solutions requires collaboration. That again is something that we were not necessarily taught when one became a leader. This, this attitude of a top-down approach to decision-making within an organization and as a way of directing individuals is something that you're saying that we need to sort of set aside and recognize that collaboration is the key, not a, a dictatorial response from above. So, to Michael, and I uh, appreciate your question uh, because uh, I, in my book, I try to, to, to explain in, in two different ways. You know? and, and the first one is to say, if we look at the, at the way we're developed, we, we, when we're born, uh, we, we, we are in a dependency mode. We depend of from our, you know, of our parents to take care of us. Then sometimes as a teenager or later, you start to think that you can be totally independent. Of course, we know that this is not the case when you are 15 or 18. 
And I'm going to send this because my daughter, she's 18. So that's exactly the moment that we live in right now. It's a beautiful moment. Um, uh, but eventually you, you end up to be independent financially or logistically, etc. And you think, yeah, I'm an adult. I'm now independent. Okay. But then uh, uh, the real maturity of a leader occurs when you understand that while you're not dependent anymore, you need to become interdependent. Interdependent means you need to collaborate with different um, individuals or different parts of the organization in order to succeed in your role. The other dimension is understanding that in the past, uh, most of the problems that we've been asked to, to collaborate and to solve were very, um, let's say, complicated problems. And a complicated problem requires technical expertise. So if tomorrow, for example, my TV is broken, I need to get somebody that knows how to fix it. It's a complicated problem to me because I have no idea how to fix it. And I need an expert that is very good in fixing TVs to solve it. Point is, if you think about COVID, artificial intelligence, the jobs, uh, the, uh, the world in, in, in Palestine, in, uh, in Ukraine, climate change, all these problems are not just uh, complicated, they're complex. And complex implies there are different elements in the part, all of them with a part of the solution. And the solution occurs exclusively if you collaborate with people around the table. Collaborate doesn't mean that you love each other person around the table. That means that you have the necessity to sit down and listen in order to find a compromise that is meaningful for everybody involved. If you don't listen to anybody's part and you think that you own the truth and everybody else doesn't, by definition, you're not a leader. You're not a leader. You're, in, in my view, you're, you're just something different that doesn't work. But there is a perception that adoption of artificial intelligence in the workplace means that AI is going to make the decisions for us. And that collaboration isn't relevant because we've got this machine that's spitting out the answers for us. We just need to follow the machine. If uh, a leader abdicates uh, uh, decision-making, then in my view, should not be considered a leader. It should be removed immediately. Um, or you can say, listen, there are some decisions that is absolutely fine to me uh, for artificial intelligence to decide, but there are some that I want to retain. And maybe let me give you a, a very stupid example. When, when I drive, I, I put YouTube and YouTube knows the songs that I love. And, and next things I know, you know, I listen to Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan and, uh, and YouTube and Pink Floyd because the system will learn that there's the music that I listen. And that's fine to me to delegate YouTube to choose my songs. But do we need to delegate, uh, you know, artificial intelligence to take decision about who to fire, who to hire, who should uh, be promoted? Um, who should be my ally in a, maybe in a synergy in my own company. If a leader believes that that decision is not pertinent to him or to her, but is pertinent to artificial intelligence, frankly, the person should uh, stand up and leave the chance to somebody else. Leadership is about responsibility and accountability. It's not about power and money. And uh, in my book, I try to explain the difference between visibility and credibility. And these are two different things. And so credibility to me is mostly related to ethical behaviors that start from decision-making. Accountability and responsibility. What about ethics? What role does that play in being a leader in a world where artificial intelligence is going to try to take more of my day-to-day -day life off my plate so that I can focus on other things? But in a way, I'm maybe, maybe naive, uh, but I, I like to think that if artificial intelligence is removing 
um, let's go into this way, the operational dimension of my role, and I can focus on something that is more uh, strategic and foresight uh, and human. Uh, I work from artificial intelligence, so in a way, I, I, I don't need to waste time in doing stuff that is repetitive and, and laborious and maybe tedious. And by the way, I have an atrocious attention to details, so it's probably very, very welcome dimension. Uh, that allows you to, to think a little bit more about, uh, about all the stuff uh, that are more, more relevant. After this podcast, learn more about this and other insightful topics by going to nokia.com slash thought leadership. There you'll find additional information linked to today's podcast. So as we've talked about the evolution of leadership in an artificial intelligence world to be more focused on empathy, collaboration, caring, uh, the accountability, responsibility, and the ethics associated with it. What about the flip side? What about the employee side? What about those underneath the leadership pyramid? What role is there for loosening control over those employees, giving them the ability to take greater responsibility for the evolution of the workplace? Every time we talk about taking a, a responsibility off the plate of a leader, um, there are those who might push back saying, well, then I'm, I'm, I'm no longer in charge if I'm uh, focusing on these other aspects, if I'm loosening that control, if I'm giving the employees the agency to make decisions for themselves, what's my role in all of this? Again, another fair and meaningful question, Mike, I, I appreciate this. Uh, and perhaps uh, I can um, dust off my, 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 my former role as being um, a chair director for uh, maybe too long, for 17 years. And I met, uh, you know, thousands of people from completely different sectors and nationalities and political or sexual press friends. And so I, I had a large variety of conversations over years, no? And, um, and I really believe that we are also accountable for our own professional uh, growth, okay? Um, yeah, of course, the, the manager, the organization provide, uh, hopefully, the investment, that safe space or the psychological safe space to do it. But the responsibility to grow professionally is mainly related to the behavior and the mindset of the individual. And in my book, I'm trying to provide, a, I wouldn't say a magic formula because there's nothing magic, but a bit of common sense to help people to navigate in that specific dimension. And I keep on asking people, say, how do you increase your professional value? And people start to think about my own salary. Say, so, okay, I'm making 100000 I want to make 150, how do I make an extra 50K? Which is, you know, if the question is, do you want to earn more money? The answer is yes, but this actually is the wrong question. <laughs> the right question should be, how to increase my value? How to increase the value that I provide to the community that I serve, to my colleagues, to my clients, and how to continue to be relevant regardless of what's happening in technology, artificial intelligence. And personally, and believe me, this is not something I figured out yesterday, but it's something that I've been thinking and watching and studying and, and, and debating for, for now three decades. I think there are three elements that each of us should focus clearly in order to continue to be relevant in the job market. The first one, what I call knowledge capital, is the knowledge that you have as an individual, but knowledge is to be translated into something concrete. And uh, I jokingly say, listen, if I were to say to you guys that I know by heart uh, every recipe of Italian cuisine, you would be impressed. But if I were to say I never cooked anything you will be less impressed. What I mean by this is that uh, whatever knowledge you bring, uh, you have to prove that it's provided some value to the people that are eating, not just, uh, uh, you know, the, a theoretical knowledge. The second one, I, I call it uh, uh, a relationship capital. 
uh, which is fundamentally the number of people that know you and number of people that trust you. Uh, knows you is, is adheres to me, I, I make the difference between visibility and credibility. It's not a number of people for you on LinkedIn. It's more about a number of people that they know you are a trustworthy individual and they call you back if you, if you call them or vice versa. So how many people do you have that fully trust you and how many people do you have that you fully trust? This is a huge, um, let's say, capital that, that you have. Now, if you put the two together and you sum it, you have to multiply by your reputational capital. And reputation, as I said earlier, is, uh, is what people say about you when you're not there. And the reason why I'm in this mock formula that I share in my book, I multiply, because if your reputation is zero, it doesn't matter how many people do you know and how much do you know, because the reputation is zero. So protecting your reputation, to me, is absolutely essential. And don't forget that what is legal is not necessarily, um, let's say, acceptable. So don't confuse reputation with legality, because reputation is something more profound related to human qualities. So then when it comes to the skill sets that are required for an employee to remain relevant in an AI-assisted workplace, is it just a matter of, of well, sorry, you got to go back to school, you got to get yourself another degree? No, not Sally. I mean, I I think I'm trying to help people maybe just by, by having us. I know it's a bit simplistic, but I think it's helpful. Whatever decision you take, try to understand who are the people or the organization they would be impacted by that decision, okay? Um, and then reach out to them to find a meaningful solution for everybody involved. And let me give you a practical example. I've been head of human resources for many years, and once per year, I needed to go to the board to make a proposal for the salary increases, okay? Well, I need to to the board, everybody in the board. I need to talk to the unions. I need to talk to the chief financial officer. I need to talk to the leadership team. I need to talk to the president. I need to have a salary service. I need to, to talk to my competitors. And I need to understand uh, why people accept or decline job offers. So uh, what I'm trying to say here is there is a moment where being a technical expert is no longer sufficient. You have really have to understand, if I were to take the decision, who would be impacted? And then immediately reach out to them because there, is a, there are studies that demonstrate that when people are involved in the decision, the decision is digested, is implemented. If people are just impose the decision, the decision doesn't, doesn't stick, it doesn't work. So to me, uh, a, a positive mindset is to say, it, it doesn't matter the sector, the level of seniority that you have, uh, try to think uh, how whatever you do has an impact on others, reach out to them, invest quality time to collaborate with them, to develop trust. And this investment that initially can be considered as a waste of time, in reality is a beautiful investment that will pay off going forward. It sounds like you need to have a mindset of intellectual curiosity to succeed and survive in an evolving workplace environment as, as AI changes everything. I am. I mean, I, this is you know, something that I, I, I keep on also you know, discussing with my daughter. And uh, I, I also said that, which is for many years, I interviewed more than 8,000 people in my life, uh, you know, given my role. And for many years, I always ask, uh, what is the most important thing that you grew in the last 12 months? And, and to me, that question, um, the answer from that question gave me a sense that the person was intellectual curious or, or, or not. Or maybe somebody said, yeah, I've learned that, uh, you know, there is a better parking lot on the right side of the building. That to me was not a great answer, no? But if somebody said, listen, I'm learning that, uh, you know, I've studied economics and uh, behavioral economics, a new discipline. 
And I found it fascinating. And that's what I'm trying to understand. That uh, I developed a new marketing strategy based on the books that I read from uh, Daniel Kahneman or whatever. That implies that a person is a mindset of intellectual curiosity that will continue regardless of the role. So it's not the accumulation of diplomas. It's about uh, a mindset of uh, humbleness. And, and perhaps, uh, as my father used to say, Paolo, if you feel like an idiot, you're probably learning. And so I'm asking people, <laughs> you know, do feel, try to feel like an idiot uh, at least twice a week. I don't say respectfully. And idiot, uh, of course, is not meant as an insult, but like uh, the, the awareness uh, that you've not yet fully grasped uh, a, a given subject that gives you the curiosity to go deeper on that subject. And so if you have that, that mindset, I think... Uh, you, you will be probably fine if you have the optimism that we discussed before to progress. We've discussed repeatedly over the course of our time together uh, the, the word collaboration and how that needs to be an evolution in our own minds as either employees or as leaders. But also, what about collaboration across industries? Do we need to rewrite our programming on how we collaborate with those who for generations we've considered to be uh, competitors and those that we're trying to overcome as opposed to work with. No, here I can give you maybe um, an example from uh, from sports and one from business. Uh, you remember when uh, Federer and, and the dad played the last game together? They hold hands and they started to cry. And I think it was a beautiful, beautiful scene because both of them said, you know what, actually I would have not become the player that, that I became without uh, without Roger or without Raphael. And this is to me is a beautiful example that collaboration can be actually done through competition if competition is done in a fair, transparent and meaningful way. So I'm not saying that competition is wrong by any means, but I'm saying that it can be uh, uh, shaped uh, in a way that improves both parties if collaboration is honest and intellectually meaningful, okay? So uh, this is the, the first tenement. The second one, and I want to provide a, 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 um, an example. Uh, some times ago, I facilitated a, a meeting with about 50 people in the room. Uh, three of them were Minister of Finance, three of them were Minister of Education, three or four Minister of Health, a couple of deans from university, few CEOs, uh, head of unions, uh, students, uh, unemployed people. So there was a large vari variety of people in the room. And the question is, what does it mean when uh, uh, life expectancies go from 70 to 90? Okay. And all of a sudden, remember, Minister of Finance said, shit, I don't have money to pay pensions. And, um, and uh, the dean of university said, I cannot expect, you know, to, to, to give a degree to, to kids age 23. They will die at 90 and they have maybe 70 years in which they don't study. What can you do to constantly, um, you know, help them to keep on growing? long after they left university. And uh, the Minister of Health uh, said, Jesus, I mean, I spent 95% of my budget in people that are 60 years old and above. And if uh, now the average age is going to be 90, I have absolutely no money left uh, to pay for the people that are below 50, so let alone young people. So this to me was a, was a beautiful example that how something has a systemic, uh, let's say, consequence on every single element, and all these people needed to you know, sit down and collaborate to say, how can we find uh, a solution that allows us to train people, recruit people, to retain people, to uh, uh, curate people, and, and to make sure that even the elderly, we care about them and we don't just forget them somewhere 
and we let them die. And that to me was a, a very watershed moment where everybody understood all the people viewpoint and they started to collaborate. Um, and so collaboration, again, is not just an acute uh, verb that you put on job description. It's something that is an essential element of leadership and behavior of any person working in any complex organization. So to bring this conversation full circle, are you pessimistic or are you optimistic that AI and humanity can work together? I'm a concerned optimist. A concern because uh, it's fair to say that uh, legislation usually comes five or 10 years after something is implemented. And, and therefore, my concern is related to the speed uh, of our society to shape and to frame uh, meaningful policies that regulate something that right now is, is, is still in the far west. But I believe that I, I remain optimistic because, you know, you need to keep faith in humankind. Building a future that's productive, sustainable and inclusive in a world that acts together. Discover how by visiting nokia.com slash thought leadership.